Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Sex, Love, and Addiction. This show was created to provide accurate expert information and support for those seeking insight into the painful realities of cheating and infidelity, sex and porn addiction, as well as the relationship between chronic drug abuse and paired sexual behavior, commonly known as chemsex. I'm your host, Dr. Rob Weiss, a licensed therapist, addiction specialist, sexologist, clinical educator, and author of 10 books on intimacy, addiction, sexuality, and relationship health. This podcast is a forum for discussing sex, love, and addiction in frank, fact-based, informative ways. My primary goal is to bring you clear advice, opinions, and feedback from some of the world's most renowned experts in human sexuality, trauma, addiction, mental health, and relationship intimacy. This show is sponsored by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs, which are also dedicated to providing expert-focused, highly specialized residential treatment for men struggling with sex, porn, and related addictions. You can learn more about Seeking Integrity and my work there at www.seekingintegrity.com. Now let's get started. Hey folks, welcome to Sex, Love, and Addiction. Uh, Here is part two of Out of the Doghouse, a relationship-saving guide for men caught cheating. I have a book called Codependence where I write about the fact that codependency doesn't exist. And one of the ways I write about that is I was teaching a course about codependence and I was saying, you know, I can understand why they buy all these books and they do all this stuff because they're so frightened and worried and they want to come to some kind of peace and understanding. And there was a guy who came to me afterwards and he said, "You know what? I used to think about codependency as being a thing, but now I understand that they're just doing what anybody would do in a crisis. And he said, do you see this backpack on my back? And I did. It was this huge purple backpack full of books. And he said to me, you know, my dad was diagnosed with cancer last month, and I have bought every book about cancer. I have read everything online about cancer. I have listened to every podcast because he doesn't want his dad to die. And he wants to understand, can I make it better? Can I fix it? That's the reason that people do all of this stuff is because they are in trauma and they're trying to make sense out of a world that used to make sense to them and no longer does. By the way, I want to say one more thing to you. When our spouses do detective work, when they go through our cell phone bills and they look through our bank statements and they try to find accounts that they don't know we had on on Facebook, on Instagram, whatever that is. And I really want you to hear this. They are not looking for reasons to leave us. When they do detective work, they are looking for reasons to stay with us. They don't want to be shocked out of their minds again, which would mean they wouldn't be able to stay. So they're looking and looking and looking to make sure that they won't find anything else so they can begin to find out like what is the bottom here what happens to our partners is when they find out about what we've been doing they're in a free fall they're in an emotional free fall and what they're looking for is the bottom you know when am i going to land and the worst thing we do and of course i'll mention this in a minute is we tell them oh this is everything you know it's okay we can start over you know and they're furious but they're like oh okay i know what the worst of it is and now i know how to move forward And when they find out more, then they're in free fall again. Only then it's worse because they don't believe that having found the bottom was really the bottom because it opened it up 
and down they go again. And this is why it's so awful for them to have staggered or trickling disclosure is all they're looking for is for reality, for clarity. And I'll say one more thing about that. And this is really hard for me to hear. I read a spouse's letter in, in treatment one day and this spouse said, you know, I could have put up with your porn problem and I could have handled everything that was going on. If you had let me know, if you had let me know, I would have helped you. I would have supported you. We could have worked on this together, but by keeping it a secret and pushing me out, you have created a nightmare for both of us. And by the way, what partners say the most often, I think you hear this probably as much as I do. I just want to know what happened. I just want to know the truth. I just want you to be honest with me. And of course, we're at the other end saying, that's the last thing I want to do because you're going to get more angry and more upset. But the reality is, is we're not going to truly gain that equality that we want in the relationship until we begin to understand how important the honesty is for us and for them. So then the question comes, well, how long are they going to be traumatized? How long are they going to be acting like this? And trust me, it is always longer than we want it to be. We want them to forgive us, to be kind, to get over it, because that would be better for us. And the truth is, it's going to depend on the following things. This is going to help decide, in part, how long they're going to feel this sense of trauma. One of it is, and you saw it in the film clip, was it sex? I mean, she kind of asked that. Was it just sex? Did you just have an affair? I put the just in, in quotes because, of course, it's not just. But nevertheless, the next thing for them is, did you, did you love them? And that is a greater violation when you emotionally violate the relationship. Sex, you know, they're not happy about it. They might be able to understand it. But then you love somebody else and you turn to them. Or worst of all, you told someone else about us. You said to someone else you were dating or having sex with that your marriage or your relationship didn't wasn't working or you weren't happy with my body. Like that's really devastating to them because now you have taken your relationship with them and you have devalued it and you've taken it to this other person and said, well, of course I want to be with you. And of course you should have me and want to be with me because look how horrible my real life is. And when they see that you have said that, you can't unsee or unhear that someone who says they love you went to someone else and complained about your body and your sex life and all of that. It's going to lead into how long it takes for them to recover. It's going to have to do with how long you've been together. Couples that have been together, in my experience, a short time, like a year or three years, it is much easier for that spouse to say, screw this. I know what's coming over the next 10 years and I'm not in. It's not unusual when I find a couple to break up that they are, haven't been together that long. In other words, when you haven't been together that long, you don't have as much to lose. You know, you don't have friends you've had for 20 years. You don't haven't been going to the same church forever. You don't have a home that you've been, you know, there isn't all of this history. When you've been in a relationship for 20 years or 15 years, it's much harder to let go of because there's all this stuff that you share that is so much greater than the thing that has happened. But understand, it is, when, a, when a partner of 30 years hears that you've been cheating for 25, it's, it's not going to go well. And they may be so devastated that they're not going to be able to recover. I do see long-term couples working through it more often because of all the stuff they share. But the people who have been together longer are actually going to be more devastated because they look back at all that time and they think, my God, what has been going on while I was behind a blindfold? They're looking at 
and what they're reacting to in part is what they went through in their past. You know, did they grow up in a family where they were, where everyone was lying to everyone else, where there were problems going on and no one talked about it? Did they grow up in a family where they, where mom and dad or whatever it was, where there was lying and secrets? The last thing that somebody wants to go through who went through a really traumatic and difficult childhood is to go through it again with you. And so feeling all those feelings from the past that they experienced then is overwhelming for them because and I'll just say this to you, I, I really love this idea that feelings have no time. If my mother dies today, I don't just experience the grief of my mother dying. I feel the grief of when grandma died and my uncle died. And it, the feeling of grief is, is one thing. If I get excited about something and I feel the sense of love, I feel all the love I've ever felt. I feel the excitement I've ever felt because feelings have no time. And if your spouse has deep feelings of the hurt they experienced earlier, and you reawaken that hurt by your behavior, they're going to go right back to what happened to them in the past. And they're going to bring that into the present with you. And it's going to be harder and take longer for them to heal. So, you know, exactly what I just, what I just said, if they have a history of trauma, that is all going to get reawakened in the trauma that they're going through with us. If you have children, it's going to be a whole lot harder they understand in ways that we don't how our children have been harmed. They understand in ways that we may not in the beginning how much more time we could have spent with them, how much more invested we could have been with them, what more, how much more of a difference we could have made in our family lives if we were more present, more available, helping more, involved more, and not out there doing this thing and keeping secrets and hoping that they don't find out. Finances are a big deal. Not every couple has financial challenges, but could you ever put too much money in your kid's college fund? If you're involved in a church or a religion, could you tithe too much? If you're not a religious person, could you give more money to charity? Could you help people who are in trouble and need help? Or do you want to spend it on sex workers? I think our spouses absolutely see whether they're in financial need or they not, or they're not. They don't want to see the money having gone into some present you bought for someone else. Because you could have bought a present for me, is what they're saying. And they're absolutely right. So the, the finances can be, and by the way, they don't trust you there either. It's like, okay, so if you took the sex out there and you lied about it to me, what else, are you spending money I don't know about? Are you buying things I don't know about? For all I know, you have a whole other world out there that I don't know about. And so they don't trust us. And it's not unusual, by the way, in a situation like this for them to say, fine, I'm taking over the finances, or I want the lawyer to give us a separation, and I want to know every penny that goes by. And it, as I said before, it isn't that we necessarily did anything financially. It's just trust. If you don't trust somebody, then it doesn't logically follow that they're going to trust you in this area and not in that area. They're going to not trust you at all. And they're going to be looking out for where they are vulnerable. And finances is not unusual for that to be the place. By the way, a lot of my compassion and sadness goes to the women in particular who may have three kids and the two partners are barely getting by on the money they make. And now she can't throw him out or he can't throw him out or he can't throw her out. 
because they need that money to take care of the family. They need that money to pay the bills. They need that money to get the car payment, or they need that dual income to make sure those kids get what they need. And there are many, many women and men who are being cheated on who don't have the choice or the option to move away because they need that money. They can't afford a lawyer. There are all kinds of things that leave them stuck in that relationship. And, you know, they just have to put up with it. And I think that's you know, a really challenging and difficult situation. And by the way, they often don't have the money for therapy or the time to go to meetings or, you know, ways that those of us who have resources are able to figure these things out. We talked about that. There is something called resiliency. It is a native thing that has to do both with our experiences growing up and our DNA and our biology. And some people are simply more able to bounce back than others. So your partner's resiliency, him or her, is about what is their native ability to experience very difficult circumstances and get through that intact. And some people, they fall apart and they're going to be a mess for a while and all their old issues come up. And some people are able to come to terms with what happened in a uh, more stable way. And that may have nothing to do with what happened or what happened in the past. That may just be who they are. Um, And resiliency is a gift that all of us do not have or do not have to the same degree. And finally, I I think this is finally how long they're going to be in this trauma, rage, confusion, I hate you state is going to depend on what kind of support they have. You know, are they going to groups? Are they going to therapy? Are they getting support? And part of the problem with being a sex addict or a porn addict is it's not like being an alcoholic. You can, I think these days, as a spouse or partner, go to your neighbor and say, I think my, my husband's drinking too much. You know, you can go to your, uh, your, your clergy or your therapist or your friend or your mother and say, you know, I think he or she has been using drugs. We sort of in our world accept and understand that there are people who end up in those situations and they are broken and they struggle. We've seen enough exposure on TV and in the movies and all that to chemical dependency to understand what that might be. And it's not a shameful, thank goodness, in the world we live in today. But go to your neighbor and say, you know, my husband has had sex with 30 sex workers in the last two years and gave me an STD. My boyfriend, my lover, my wife has had three affairs in the last two years and gave $5,000 to the person that they were having the affair with while we were struggling. It is so much harder to say because every partner feels like, first of all, this must be my fault or I must have contributed to it. And there are a lot of people, mothers and clergy and all kinds of folks who will say, well, sweetheart, if you just had more sex with him, if you just been more engaged with him, if you just made him or her happier, this would have never happened. And how easy that is for them to say, because it isn't happening to them. So it is not unusual for the spouses I work with to have very little support because of the amount of shame and fear that comes with this going on in their relationships. You just don't want to. And as I said earlier, do you want to tell your mother and your sister what just happened, knowing that if you stay together, there's going to be a Thanksgiving in a year? And how are they going to look at you and her, you know, how are they looking at, going to look at you as a partner? How are they going to look at you still being together? How, are, how is that family going to deal with knowing what someone they love has been through by you? And you all have to sit there at the dinner table and get through that turkey and stuffing. You know, whatever your beliefs are, whether you're faith-based or not, people who are often have a, an easier time saying, maybe this happened for a reason, or maybe there's something I can learn for this, or maybe, you know, God put this in my path or whatever. Those are comforting 
stabilizing experiences for people of faith. But I got to tell you, there are a lot, there are a lot of us who are not people of faith. And it's very hard for us to come to terms with why does such a bad thing happen to a good person like me? And that's a really tough one for them to answer because they can't say, well, there was something for me to learn here. In fact, people who are not faith-based, I think more go to if they get through things, wow, I did learn something from this, or I was able to get through this. And how amazing it was that I learned my way through or whatever that is, but they're not looking like this happened for a reason. They're looking at it like I got through it and I learned from it and I grew from it. Either way, it's a nightmare. So what they're going through is something I call the emotional roller coaster, which is one day they love you and one day they hate you and they look over at you and you're looking at that magazine and playing with your family and they're like, oh my God, I love you so much. And the next minute you're on, your, on the phone by yourself and they think, I know they're at it again. They're probably talking to him and you know all of that stuff. And that's really crazy making for them and for us because we walk in the room and the morning went well and we're thinking, oh, now I'm home and it's going to be great. And they've been thinking about it and they went to a therapy session and they realized between the morning and the evening that they fucking hate us. And we're like, but I didn't even see you all day. You were in this place. And yeah, that is their roller coaster. And what I say to them is welcome to your new normal. Because they say, why can't I feel better? Why can't I stop being all over the place? Well, because you've been through a crazy making situation and you are now crazy and crazy is your new normal. Don't expect to feel better for a very long time. One of the things I think that's particularly difficult for our spouses is they end up in this place called ambivalent love, where they both love us and hate us at the same time. And that makes them completely crazy. Which one is it? It's crazy making for us, but we can say, okay, there's a good morning and tonight didn't go well. You know, that's the way it is. But for them, it's like, how can I look over to you and feel all this love and faith and trust and then look it over you and think I hate you and, I, and you ruin my life? And I don't even know which one is true. That is very, and by the way, both are true. So it's a very tough one for them to experience because their life is completely changed in ways that they never expected, they didn't want, and they don't really understand. So one of the things I would want to draw your attention to is that each of you is in a different place. You know, you may be at, okay, now it's on the table. Now I've been found out. Now I know what I need to do and I'm going to get to work. But your spouse, they may have just found out about this. I mean, you've known about your acting out for as long as you've known about it, but they may have known about it before and thought it stopped. They may be just running into this, or they may be just running into the amount of it, and that is completely overwhelming to them. So the same thing happened to both of you at the same time that this you know, disclosure or this problem became, you both became acutely aware of it because now they're in touch or they have a realization of what's happened and they're really upset. But it's not like you both went through a car accident because you have known about this all along. You have known what's going on, but spouses are often introduced to things that are brand new, things that we knew about for years. And so in our early healing, this could, we can be in very different places. And by the way, this is where therapists can really go wrong in couples therapy because they have a couple coming in and we are so contrite. And we are so wanting forgiveness and we are calm and we know what we've been through and we feel terrible. And we're looking there like, what can I do to make this better? And our spouses are crying and laughing and they gain 20 pounds and they look like a mess and they haven't been taking the care of themselves. And they're screaming and crying in the session. 
And then the worst thing that could possibly happen happens, which is the person who's been cheating and the therapist look at each other. And there's this moment where it's like, oh, yeah, I get why you've been cheating, because if I was with someone who was such a mess, I probably would cheat, too. And the reality is, is they weren't a mess six months ago. They weren't a mess two years ago. They're a mess because of what I did. But now it's so easy for me to be the one who looks like I have it together because they look so crazy. And the reality is, how did they get to be so crazy because of what I did? We are often prepared. We're knowledgeable. We're even calm and relieved. We're hopeful and fearful that's not where they are at all. And we might expect them, by the way, why aren't you over this? You know, after all, I'm feeling better. And the reality is their period of trauma is probably going to be somewhere between nine months and a year, always shorter than we want, and never taking into account the hard work that we've done, because that's not where they are. And they can be furious and hurt and upset at nine months at a year. And they are not crazy. And they are not necessarily dealing with past trauma. They have been devastated by what we did. Their child has been hit by a truck and that child is in the hospital and they don't know if that child is going to live or die. That's how they feel about the relationship. So they are going to be a mess and they're going to be a mess for a long time. And our expectation that three months, six months, I've been doing my job. I'm doing all the things I'm supposed to do. And why aren't they cheering for me? The reason is because they're in shock and it looks like post-traumatic stress disorder, stress disorder. They look like crazy people. So how long does it take for them to get off this roller coaster? Nine to 18 months after a disclosure, provided that you're both working on this, they both have a place to go to heal, and provided that you're both involved in this process. By the way, provided you're not cheating, that you're not lying, that you're doing your best to be a better partner. I mean, all of that is going to influence how they respond to the situation and how long it takes. Is couples therapy useful in the beginning? My answer is no, that's not my experience. In the first six to nine months, you need to work on getting support for you because you may be used to turning to your partner for support, but they don't want to hear it and they don't care about it. And think about it, that person that you most leaned on in your life, you can no longer lean on them and you can no longer turn to them for your support because you're the one who destroyed them. And they can't come to us for support because they don't believe in us, they don't trust us, and they have lost their best friend. So both of us need to focus on getting our own support, our own therapies, our own 12-step work on all of that. And then we can turn to each other and work together. Because in the beginning, couples therapy kind of looks like this. If you cheated on me, I'm going to be sitting there saying, you motherfucker, you ruined my life and I hate you. And if I'm the one who's cheated, cheated, I'm going to say, like, please forgive me. Please forgive me. I didn't mean it. And that's really not a great place to launch into couples therapy. You guys need to know where you're at, how it happened, what it meant, how to get support, all that kind of stuff before you can turn back to each other and begin to figure out how to work on it together. So primary concerns for the spouses, the things they're worried about. Should I stay or should I go? Should I stay in this relationship or do I need to leave? How do I know that this is it? How can I even begin to trust that there isn't more that I'm going to find out later? I didn't know this was coming. When am I going to be fooled again? How am I going to know if they're acting out again? Not only am I worried about, did I get all the information, but maybe they're back at it again and I don't even know again. 
How do we ever reestablish trust? How can I ever believe in them again? How can we ever have sex again? And one of the things I tell spouses all the time is, you know, would you have sex with someone you don't trust? And their answer is, well, of course not. And then I will say, well, why would you have sex with a sex addict if you don't trust them? And trust is not restored in three weeks or three months. It takes a while, much longer than we would like it to take. By the way, can you survive not having sex for a while? Absolutely. Are parts of you going to fall off? No. Are you going to be in pain? No. When you were a kid, if you weren't able to or hadn't learned to masturbate, you would have a nocturnal emission. Well, your body would take care of itself and it still will. You are not going to die and no parts are going to fall off if you don't have sex for a while. And as I said, I tell the partners to expect that crazy is their new normal. Hey there. I sure hope you're enjoying this Sex, Love, and Addiction podcast. Before we continue, I'd like to remind you that if you or someone you know or love needs treatment for sex addiction, porn addiction, or co-occurring drug problems, Seeking Integrity can help. For more information, please visit our website at www.seekingintegrity.com. That's seekingintegrity.com. Or call us at 747-234-4325. So this is what spouses deal with. They, you know, what they're dealing with as we begin to recover, they expect us to be a hundred percent emotionally available and to do it right now. This is when they feel entitled after what you did to me, you need to respond to this and be this and be this way and act that way. And, and, you know, all of that stuff that you should have been in the first place. But the problem is, is that we may not know how. It's one thing to learn how to stop acting out and build relationships. It takes a lot longer to learn how to not be an asshole. And that may be a couple of years. And when I do groups with spouses, they say this all the time, which is how come he has a year of sobriety? How can this be? And he's still so narcissistic and so into himself and so not understanding of what I'm going through. And that's because learning to be a better person takes a while. Learning how to not act out doesn't have to take so long if you're doing the right work. They want all of the things that upset them before, our distancing, our crabbiness, our lack of involvement with the family, our narcissism. They want that to go away, and they want it to go away right now because they deserve to have the person that they should have had in the first place, and they do. It's just that we may not be able to be that person in the beginning. They're questioning everything about us. Why did you have that erection? What are you thinking about right now? I know you're thinking about that. You looked over there. That's where you used to look when you're acting out. They're going to be in this hypervigilant, constantly questioning and looking through things place for a long time. It can be hard for us when we come home because we learn in treatment that we do need solitude. We do need reflection. We do need some time to find what we enjoy and do it other than sex. And that's going to mean we we have to go to meetings. We have to go to therapy groups. Maybe we need to go and play golf or enjoy our car or whatever it is we're into once a week. Our partners are not going to like that. They're going to say, after all the time you spent acting out and doing these other things, now you're going to abandon me again and all your sacrifices that you're not putting into our family because you need to go to meetings and you're going to go play a game of golf. Yes, we need to do these things, and we need to help our spouses and partners understand that we're not going to grow if we don't have some space to grow. On the other hand, that means we got to work double hard to meet our responsibilities at home. 
Sometimes we will be hit by our spouses. Sometimes they will disregard our humanity and say, you know, I, I wish I'd never had children with you. You're a terrible father, you know, or, or whatever that is. And I would prefer they don't do that. And I think there are ways that we can learn to take timeouts and walk away when abuse is happening. It is never acceptable, ever, 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 for me to hit someone, to break things, to slam doors, to yell. You know, you're not five. And if you have a problem or they have a problem with violating someone's humanity by hitting them or telling them that they, they don't deserve to live, then they need to work on their anger. And if there's physical abuse, don't forget that you get arrested for that shit or you better go to an anger management class because you've got a real problem. And the kids don't miss out on that if you have it. They watch it, they hear it, they experience it, and they learn it. Being a kid isn't just about what how my interactions are with them. It's about what do they see? How do they see us treating each other? What do they see us doing together and not? Spouses are going to overinterpret. If I'm in a bad mood, they're going to think I'm at it again. If I'm distant, they're going to think I'm at it again, or I'm not working on myself. They're always looking for reasons that I'm back at it again. And no matter what I say, that's going to be where they're at because they don't trust me. This is an important one. It's not unusual for our spouses to not want to be in therapy. And they're going to say stuff like, well, I didn't cheat. I didn't cause these problems. I'm not the one who ruined our family. I'm not the one who victimized me. So why do I need to go to therapy? And the reason is because they've been victimized, because they've been cheated on, because they've been hurt, because they've been violated. And when you go through trauma, you need support for that. The therapy that our spouses need is supportive, nurturing, kind, reflective. That's not what we need. We need therapy that is containing, confrontive, pushes us through our denial, helps us see what we have to lose, pushes us toward being more aware of our addiction and what it costs and how we can anticipate it and act differently. That's what we need. It's a very different process of treatment than what our spouses need. And they think that they were going to therapy because there's something wrong with them. And the reality, we go to therapy because there's something wrong with us. They have to go to therapy because of what's happened to them. And unless they can come to a point to understand that that's why they need the support, then they're going to not go. And if they don't go to therapy, it's, it's going to make it much harder because it's, they're going to be living in the trauma state longer. They're going to be having a harder time coming to terms with what happened and not blaming themselves. You know, all of this is what happens if they don't have a place to go to get support. Is therapy the only place? No, they can turn to their clergy. They can turn to family. They can turn to friends, but they have to turn to people who are going to help them. You know, just like you don't recover from addiction by yourself, you can't recover from trauma and betrayal by yourself. It takes their going into rooms when they're hating themselves and they look across the room and they see another person who's just like them, same age, same family life, and they got betrayed too, and they got hurt too. And then it's easier for them to say, oh, I get it. It isn't just me and it isn't me. This happens to a lot of people. And that brings them peace. So quickly, what is disclosure? It's when the keeper of secrets reveals the truth. It's not an apology. It's not a search for help. It's not a plea for forgiveness. It's not a, a chip where I give you, you give me this and I give you disclosure. It's not something that happens in the steps. 
I have many people say, well, the 12 steps tells me that I'm not supposed to make an amends until much later. And this is not it. You're not asking for forgiveness, nor should you be. This is simply giving the spouse information that they should have had all along and they haven't had. And we give that information to them in order to help them not lose their minds. They will say, oh my God, I knew that was going on when we went on vacation. And in some way that is comforting for them because they felt it, they experienced it, they kind of knew it. And we said by gaslighting, oh, you don't know what you're talking about, or that never happened. It is validating for them and comforting for them to, for them to understand that they weren't crazy, that this was going on all along. And that is really the beginning of their healing, because if they believe us and if we are honest, then they can begin to let go of the what's going to happen next. And I can't live with this. And I, you know, they begin to move into the solution. But disclosure is required. And I'll, I'll say this to you. If a couple is not going to stay together, there's no point of disclosure. The purpose of disclosure is to bring a couple closer together. The purpose of disclosure is to restore or grow intimacy, to create that equality that wasn't there. If you're going to divorce me, I'm not going to give you disclosure because I don't want the history of what's happened and what I've done to land in front of a custody attorney. If you are willing to work it out with me and stay in here with me, and yes, I will tell you everything that's happened. If you say to me, well, I'm not going to decide what we're going to do until I hear disclosure, I'm not sure I would do disclosure. So disclosure is not an apology. It's not forgiveness. It's not a bargaining chip. I said this earlier, but I want to say it again. We did some research on what happens and how often partners who have been cheated on get partial disclosure, drip, drip, drip of pieces, not in a therapeutic way, but okay, fine, I'll tell you this, and that's it. But actually, there's more, and then you tell them that. It is tempting for us, an unfaithful partner, to attempt damage control by, or trying to have control altogether by revealing a little of this, or some of this, or not all of this. In fact, in the research study that a couple of colleagues, colleagues of mine did, a majority of us almost 60%, and a big majority of partners, almost 70%, reported that there had been more than one major disclosure, and this is a nightmare for them. We think we're getting away from something. We think, oh, good, they don't know the worst of it, and they never will. Or how about this one? What they don't know won't hurt them. Well, the truth is, is the more they know, the less they're going to hurt. Not right away, but over time. What they want is honesty. They want to know what the hell is going on in my life, in my home, with my family, and they have a right to know that. So to be in the doghouse means to admit defeat. It means here's your chance to learn about humility, to learn empathy and respect. It's an opportunity with your spouse to learn to listen and reflect rather than react. It is a time to really be able to hear what they have to say and not defend it because you're looking at the whole picture with them and how it's affected your whole lives and not just what's happening in the moment. It's a chance to not learn how to not defend yourself because we, what we've done is not defensible. So we might as well live with the reality of who we are and what we've done. Being in the doghouse means that we're learning about humility and learning to be grateful that we even have a relationship still, and that they're willing to communicate with us and work on things, even if we're not living with them anymore, that they are willing to, to engage with us in any way is something to be grateful for, because there are many people who would not. It's an opportunity for us to learn that, that our partner may not see what I see. They may not agree with I They may not even be right. 
but that I can tolerate that. And I don't have to fight back because they thought that I was having an affair while I was just at the grocery store. I can say, yeah, it wasn't what you think, but it doesn't matter because it happened three years ago and I don't need to be right right now. Being in the doghouse means that we understand that we do not get a gold star for meeting minimum relationship requirements, for going to therapy, for going to meetings, for doing the laundry, for being filling the fridge or whatever it is. We don't get a good job for that. That's what nine-year-olds get. We just are doing the things that we should have been doing all along or we need to do, have it being as troubled as we are. And if anyone's going to give us a gold star, it's not our partners. And this is where I get to tell you my little story, which is about a guy who went to a 12-step meeting and he had 90 days of sobriety. And he and all the guys in the meeting are like, oh my God, I'm so proud of you. You did great. You got 90 days. That's fantastic. Woohoo. And then he goes to his therapy session and he holds up the chip and he says, I have 90 days. And everyone in the group is like, that's fantastic. Wow. Pass that chip around. You did great. You know, the therapist thinks it's wonderful. And then he goes home to his wife or her husband, whatever he has at home, and he says, hey, honey, I got a 90-day chip. What do you think about that? And here she says, well, big fucking deal, because we've been together for three years, 12 years, whatever it was, and you want me to cheer for you because you haven't cheated on me in 90 days when you had been cheating on me for 12 years. And then we go back to our groups and our therapy, and we say, God, you know, my partner is a real bitch. I mean, all this hard work I'm doing and he or she just can't see how much I deserve to be cheered for, for this hard work that I've done. And the reality is we absolutely do need to be cheered for. That's why we have to build relationships with people and program and sponsors and therapists and clergy and whatever, so they can cheer for us. But it is not our partner's job to cheer for our recovery. It is a minimum requirement that we are focused on recovery as far as they are concerned, and rightly so. To be in the doghouse means that we are going to find people and activities and situations that are going to help us move toward help. Situations that are not sexual, that are non-romantic, but we will get our needs met without having to turn to a stranger and not having to turn to the partner that, that we hurt and not demanding that the spouse that we hurt, that we let down, also turn around and be our support because that is abusive. Okay. Can you learn empathy? Yes. But it is a late stage of this process. What is empathy? Empathy is the capacity for me to feel what it is you might be going through to anticipate what you might be going through without going through it myself. So if you crashed your car and I've never run my car into anything, empathy is, wow, that must have been scary for you. And that's your new car. I know of this, that you must be at yourself about that or that other person who hit you. That's empathy. I'm not going through it. It didn't happen to me, but I can imagine what that must be like for you. And, you know, I can imagine what it must be like to be cheated on. I can imagine what it must be like to go to the bank account and find that there's nothing there. Empathy is our ability to anticipate and feel and then talk about what we believe a difficult situation might be causing someone we love. It's what we lack when we're cheating and acting out with porn and relationships and sex workers. And because we don't, want to have empathy when we're acting out. I don't want to think about how it's affecting my partner. I don't want to think about how it's affecting my family, because if I did, then maybe I'd have to stop. So we are anti-empathy when we are acting out 
It doesn't mean we don't have it or it can't be developed, but it does mean we've spent as long as we've spent acting out, um, working very hard to not feel the reality of what we've done. And going into treatment, by the way, means that someone like me is going to say to you, look at what you've done and how it's affected the people you love. And my hope is that once you get past, I'm such a piece of shit and I hate myself and I can't believe I did this, that you will move to, I can't believe what my spouse might be going through. I can't believe what my family might be experiencing. That's empathy. Beginning to believe and understand that others are suffering too and thinking about how and then commenting on that or at least acting in a way like you understand it. And if you don't get it, you should always try. Try to be empathic. Try to be compassionate. This is one of the reasons why I wrote out of the doghouse. I knew that all of you were not going to go, oh, I know how they're feeling. I knew that that was going to be, it's a late stage part of recovery. However, if you can approximate behavior that looks empathic, maybe then you will um, start to gain what you're looking for. In other words, empathy can be learned by doing it. One of the things I wrote in the doghouse, and I wrote it really extensively, is here's what empathy looks like. Here's how you respond. Here's what you say. Now, I'm giving you a cheat. <laughs> that book is direction about how to look empathic. It may not be about being empathic. That's not the point. What I want you to understand is if you act empathically, then your partner will respond in a good way. And if they respond in a good way, hopefully you'll say to yourself, huh, that worked really well. And as an addict, I'm thinking that I worked them really well because when I acted like this, they responded like that. Great. I don't care what your motivation was. Keep doing it. Keep learning that when you act empathically, they feel better. And eventually it's going to come automatically that you understand that when you reach out to them, say, I can't believe what you're going through. I'm so sorry even if it's just something that happened to them, that over time, that's just going to start happening naturally because it's reinforcing. You see the positive effect it has and you continue to do it because you want that positive effect to continue to happen. Okay, so how do we restore trust in the relationship? This is the last thing. We do it through being consistently honest, through having integrity and engaging behaviors that demonstrate our commitment um, and our empathy. So. Trust is restored over time through our doing and engaging in reliable and consistent actions. Words mean nothing. I love you. Happy birthday. Nothing. I'm not going to do this again. Nothing. It's what we do that matters, not what we say. It's about being fearless about telling the truth. I had a slip this week. I went back to that sex worker. You have to tell them that. And it's not going to be a good evening, but you can't hold a secret like that. Not if you want things to get better. It might be a bad three months because you went back to it. But the thing that's going to be different is your spouse is going to say to themselves, huh, they acted out, but this is different. They told me, wow, I actually know what's going on. They've been honest with me. And remember, the thing I said they most want is to know what the heck is going on. And when we are honest with them, even if it's stuff they don't want to hear, they begin to regain trust. We keep our commitments to the things we have promised. When you leave treatment, I, or when someone leaves treatment, I tell them, put on your refrigerator what you're going to do Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, each day what you're going to do for your recovery. I'm going to go to a meeting this day. I'm going to see my therapist that day. I'm going to call my sponsor. Because your partner should not have to look up and say, 
well, are you doing this? Or where are you? Or you said you were going to be here. You want to restore trust? You help them understand that what you promised is happening and they don't need to look for, are you doing it or where are you or what's going on? Because you have automatically and consistently done that thing you said you were going to do related to recovery. After a while, they will stop nagging. They will stop searching because they begin to believe that you are committed to this being non-defensive, being empathic, acting as a full contributing member of the family, showing patience and empathy Um, being understanding of their pain, showing boundaries and self-care, that you don't ask them to rescue you, that you can take care of yourself. These are the things that can bring your relationship back to some sense of equality. It's not going to ever take away what you did. The naivete that people have when they're in relationships with someone that, that because they love me, they will never do this or they would never do this again, that's gone. Your partner will never look look at you in the same way that you would never deliberately go and hurt them because they know that you can and you will and you have. So that's not coming back. But you know, if you glue a plate back together, it shows the crack. But that's the strongest place in in the plate now is where it was glued back together. Relationships can be better. They can be more honest, more intimate, and more special. But what happened is never going to go away. So what does it take for a couple to heal? And for you to understand about that, the original trust in your relationship is gone forever, and it is not going to be regained, not in the way that it was before. Your partner is in a state of trauma, and they cannot move forward, nor will you, until they have begun to understand that trauma and come to peace with it. We, the person who cheated, the addict, has destroyed the foundation of trust in our relationship. We did that. And therefore, we are no longer an equal in the relationship until trust is restored. We, the person who acted out sexually, porn, romantically, we are responsible, not our partners, for building a new foundation of trust. And that's how we regain equity in the relationship. I believe that if a couple is going to go forward, that they need to make a commitment to each other that, let's say, for the first six months, we're not going to talk about leaving. We're not going to talk about ending. For this period, we're going to put our relationship in a safe harbor, and we're going to say we're going to leave the conclusions about our relationship aside and work on ourselves. And then we can turn back to each other in six months and say, how are we doing? Should we go forward? How we go forward? I would prefer that you don't bail in anger and that you don't threaten leaving or threaten because things aren't going your way or theirs. Let's put this aside and say the relationship and the enduring state of it, let's not worry about that and just do the work that we're here to do right now. During this period of safety, you both need to put your primary emotional needs on other people, not affair partners and not people you're having sex work with, but peers and support groups and therapy, because you cannot put your your needs on your spouse because they're the ones that you've hurt. You can't ask them to turn around and support you when what they need is to be angry at you. And I suggest putting sex on hold until the coupleship trust is restored because, and I'll just give a very basic reason. When people have trust to get, when people have sex with a long-term partner, they feel closer. They may feel more trusting. They may feel you're more reliable. And the truth is, is that may not be the case. And having sex in order to make your partner feel safe or having sex to feel like, oh, they're not going to go out there with someone else and cheat if we're having sex. Those are not the right reasons to be sexual. The right reasons have to do with 
intimacy, that the sex comes out of the intimacy. Sex does not lead to the intimacy when you're in a situation like this. And finally, trusting each other is the key to the survival of your relationship. And we have to be the primary ones who demonstrate consistent and imperfect trustworthiness. And with that, I will say, I hope this was really helpful and clear for you. Thank you. Hey, folks, I hope you have enjoyed part two of Out of the Doghouse, a relationship saving guide for men caught cheating. If you are interested, there is a book called Out of the Doghouse. You can find it on Amazon. I find that a lot of women buy it and then throw it at their husbands or at their male partners. The other thing is that you can also take a course uh, if you're one of these folks who just had a book thrown in your face called Out of the Doghouse, which we offer on SeekingIntegrity.com. Hi, this is Dr. Rob again. Thank you for joining us today. If this show has inspired you to seek further information for yourself or someone you love, I encourage you to visit our treatment center website, which is www.SeekingIntegrity.com. There you'll find some useful information about the residential treatment we provide, which I think is some of the best, most useful, short-term, effective, intensive care you can find for sexual addiction and compulsivity, as well as combined drug sex or chem sex problems. On SeekingIntegrity.com, you can find some useful advice and direction for healing. And don't forget, if you want to write me about this podcast or reach any of my guests, please write me at Rob at SeekingIntegrity.com. I really look forward to our next time together. Take good care.